Good morning, everybody. We're really excited to be here. And um, my name is Michael Kim. I'm the founder of Sendana Capital. And we're going to be talking about the evolution of the seed market. And so for those who don't know Sendana, I started this 10 years ago. And we're actually celebrating our 10th anniversary tomorrow, um, which we're really excited Woo. about. Um, thank you. But the world's really changed. When I, when I started Sendana, there were probably 10 to 15 seed funds. These were like Mike Maples, Michael Deering, Steve Anderson, and then people like Jeff Clavier, who people were calling him a super angel. And today there's probably over 2,000 seed funds in the US alone. And so that evolution has been really, really, really interesting. And you know, it's also um, very remarkable the type of financings that are going on. So back in the day, we looked at our, our, our data. Seed funds were doing maybe one and a half million dollar rounds on seven to eight million pre. Today, looking at our portfolio, the average seed round is over three million and about 15 to 18 million uh, pre money. So just looking at our portfolio, our um, seed funds have gone from on average 40 million in size to over 100 million. And when we look at our pre-seed funds, you know, they've, they've actually stayed pretty consistent, around 40 to 50 million. And actually, the distinction between pre-seed and seed funds is very interesting as well. Today, the pre-seed rounds are about a million in size and on maybe six or seven posts. Um, and that is exactly where it was back in the day when I started Sendana. So today, I really want to help um, you understand how this has evolved. We have three of our amazing fund managers here. Uh, so we're really proud of each one of them. And maybe what we can do is start off by um, asking each of you to talk about a little bit about yourself, your firm, and actually how you got started in investing and how that's actually different than what it, what it is today. Hey, everybody. Um, yeah, my journey was, I was an operator, so VP of product at Tinder. And um, I give a ton of credit to AngelList. So when I was first getting started, I was writing $1,000 checks um, in other people's syndicates. And then one day realized that I could be the syndicate lead um, and really just started building one of the biggest syndicates on AngelList. Um, eventually became a scout for Next Venture, which was my first managed pool of capital. Uh, focused that entirely on crypto in 2017, so that fund ended up doing quite well. Um, we invested in the seed rounds of Dapper, The Graph, Compound Finance, and some others. Uh, and then leaving Tinder, I wanted to start a fund. It was a $10 million fund. I just literally emailed my AngelList syndicate um, and got my first million dollars and then uh, was kind of off to the races and uh, was lucky to partner with, with you all, obviously. But um, yeah, times have changed since then. That was 2019 and now our team's seven people big. We have, um, we're entirely focused on crypto now. And so we've really kind of felt the need to, to specialize and focus. And um, I want to find those, those six, $6 million pre-seed rounds. <laughs> I'm not seeing those right now. Right. And we'll get into that. But also, uh, you know, you raised your second fund already, and um, I think it's $40 million. That's right, yeah. We raised 40 and then a $20 million uh, opportunity fund. So right. we're, we're at about 60 right now. Right. And uh, at least when we invested in, in, in Chapter 1, um, I think that was at the end of 2020, 2020 right? And then um, I think you raised your next fund like six or eight months later. Uh, so the pacing was re relatively quick. We did. I pride myself the $10 million fund was a two-year deployment cycle. So, um, you know, right now that seems pretty pretty crazy. But we're, um, we're actually 12% deployed on this current fund, and we're happily behind pace. So um, hopefully, uh, hopefully that's a good thing. Right. 
Okay, we'll definitely talk about investment pace and all that. Um, Katie, you know, um, I met Katie probably three or four years ago. She uh, has an amazing background as an operator and also in the political world. But uh, love to let uh, everyone hear your background. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Katie Stanton. I'm the founder and GP of Moxie Ventures. And my first investment was um, in 2008, and I was working with Mini at Google, and um, and I had this friend, Chris Saka, who was raising a venture fund. I'm like, what's a venture fund? He's like, you give me money. And, and I'm like, okay. And then what? It's like 10 years later, 20 years later, you get money back. And I was like, all right, sounds like the biggest scam of the century. But um, but. I knew how much he could hustle and how smart he was. And so that was my first investment, which ended up being pretty good. Um, but then fast forward, I was busy as an operator. I was at um, Google and then Twitter and Color, um, spent a couple of years um, working for President Obama. And um, But it was really when I was at Twitter, I had some girlfriends and we were like, we wanted to do more angel investing. We're like, how come every time you see these cap tables, it's always the same cast of characters? And like, where are the women? Where are the people of color? Where are the operators? And we know there's so much value that this you know wider group of people could add. And so we called ourselves hashtag angels. And we did what every VC does. We just kind of announced it on Twitter. We have a blog post. We're like, we're in business. And we were really surprised by the volume of interest. And so, um, so that really accelerated my experience as an angel investor. I was lucky to be a scout for Spark Capital because um, it's a very expensive hobby. <laughs> and, um, and then realizing how much I loved it, I wanted to do this full time and was lucky enough to start Moxie. That's great. Um, and also, I think it'd be interesting to talk a little bit about these scout programs, but we'll, we'll do that in a minute. And um, so, Peter, uh, I think we met maybe two years ago, and you have a fascinating background, um, starting all the way in college yeah, uh, sure. with venture. So maybe uh, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, totally. Um, so I showed up to college thinking I was going to be a physicist, and I was going to advance science that way. And I got totally wrecked in my freshman year physics class. And so my plan B became starting one of the hacker communities on campus called Hack Harvard. And then I created the venture capital club on campus called Harvard Ventures. And so I kind of created the kind of like the mentor network from the venture community and I had the engineers. And so, so that's the way that I ended up kind of reinventing myself um, when I was in college. Um, when I got to my senior year talking about scout programs, um, I was really fascinated by solving the, the funding kind of issue. So if you were you know, a student in Boston, there wasn't a coffee shop where you could kind of walk into and get a $25,000 check. Um, that's something that is structurally an incredible advantage in, in places like Palo Alto. And so I was like, okay, I need to create this for, for, for all of my friends. And so started Rough Draft Ventures with the team at General Catalyst with Bilal, uh, who's now at Lux. Um, and I'd gotten to know that team and the other kind of incredible venture investors in Boston. And I feel you know, so lucky to have had so many mentors along the way, like Chris Saka and Rob from NextView and so many others. Um, and Katie uh, has been an incredible support. And so, so I started Rough Draft, this kind of fund for students when I was in my senior year. Uh, that's how I came to join the team at General Catalyst. So, you know, I joined a firm that was 35 people. It was two offices headquartered in Boston. Um, I spent eight years there. So I kind of, you know, went from associate to, to partner. I went from supporting on investments to leading investments. Um, all the while we were scaling Rough Draft. And then this time last year, I spun out to build Stellation, which is you know me as a solo GP, $40 million fund leading pre-seed and seed investments. That's great. And um, you know I think one of the common themes here is that everyone has a different path toward venture and toward your firms. Um, and again, you know 10 years ago, there weren't really that many scout programs. There weren't angel lists rolling funds. There weren't operators 
with their little side funds. Um, you know, maybe talk a little bit about how those dynamics have really changed the seed round and pre-seed round or in, in Web3. Um, you know, obviously in, in crypto and Web3, there are very large pools of capital going after these opportunities early. And so, so actually, we'll just go after that. Jeff, how do you compete? Yeah, I mean, I think increasingly you're competing with the party round as opposed to like another pre-seed fund. And so uh, to get a 500K check in around, you have to prove that you're worth um, all of those angels that they could let in with that allocation. And um, that becomes a matter of finding a founder who really believes that having uh, more, more of a stable partner, someone who's uh, there every day will be valuable as opposed to operators. But um, it's, a, it's a real challenge. And I think... Um, you know, the, it's funny because we try and explain that to LPs sometimes and who our competition is, and they really want you to name other funds. And um, increasingly, I have to say, it's like it's this like super angel um, syndicate of, of people we're competing against. Right. And you also mentioned that you brought on like six or seven people to your team. Is that in order to support your companies or also to help evaluate what's probably more technical than, say, a, a D to C company? Yeah, I think in Web3 specifically, the needs of founders are so different and you're seeing teams built um, with with really lean investment teams and a lot of researchers so we have uh, you know seven people we have a data scientist on staff we have an engineer um, we have a head of experiments and research and so you know it's pretty heavy on trying to identify areas in the ecosystem that um, other people might be overlooking and um, trying to compete I think with um, you know you look at, at paradigm they have 30 researchers on staff and so that's kind of um, upstream um, what you're what you're competing against and the DNA of teams is just so different so we're um, trying to redefine what that looks like for a seed fund right and so uh, touching on that in terms of like sourcing so Katie and and, and Peter um, how are you sourcing your deals these days is it a little bit different than when it was like five years ago or ten years ago when you started angel investing when I started, most of my sourcing was from you know many of my operating colleagues, so engineers I work with at Google or Twitter who are starting new things, and that became a very rich source. Now, I think mostly because I'm in this business full time, the best sourcing comes from other founders. We all live in this reputation business, and so if you are helpful, if you are genuine, if you are positive, um, and you're you know positively influencing these companies, founders will have a great experience, and then introduce you to their roommates, their colleagues, and other great founders. So, um, so we continue to reinvest in that that type of sourcing. Yeah, it's definitely changed a lot. Um, so the the thing that I would say to also kind of kind of established the foundation for scout programs is is Mark Granovetter's paper on the strength of weak ties, I think is kind of like the fundamental concept that sits behind that. And so um, I, I'd taken a class on network theory when I was in college. And that's why, you know, part of what helped me kind of think through that, you know, having a, a network of, of students across campuses was going to be the best way to access the best ideas in dorm rooms. And so, you know, my sourcing today is, you know, a function of that relationship with students who, you know, they started a company, then went and spent two years, you know, working in a company, and then all of a sudden, you know, took all of those earnings and want to now um, start a, uh, start their their next company. So that's a fair amount. Um, and then, as kind of a compliment to what Katie said, I've actually really loved getting calls from investor friends that I've had trusted relationships with over, you know, eight, ten years. Um, and when I get that call and someone's like, look, I, I've got an incredible young person. They're going to drop out of Wharton. I told them they can't close the round until you uh, chat with them. You know, that's where being kind of an individual GP, you know, I, I text back or I call back and I say, you know, I'm going to see that founder later tonight 
uh, and they're going to have a decision from me tomorrow. Um, and a lot of that, I think, to Katie's point, is about having those trusted relationships, which take, takes a lot of time to forge. One thing that strikes me is that, you know, when Jeff, you, you talk about your team of six or seven, and Katie, you have your partner, and Peter, you're a solo GP, right? <laughs> how, do you guys, how do you guys scale your bandwidth and, you know, to serve your founders? I'm going to listen to answers, by the way. I'm going to be quiet and listen to answers. I did my first fun as a solo GP, and like so much respect to people who can do that well. Um, I, I'm married, and I felt, I felt like to be a good husband and to be uh, a sane human, I needed to bring on help because just scaling your time is, is so hard. And if, you're, if you are co-leading and leading rounds and trying to invest at the same time, um, it's truly, truly very hard to do as a solo GP. So... Um, I know it's kind of a buzzy uh, thing within the ecosystem, and um, I'm personally like pretty lukewarm on that being um, a long-term thing in, um, in venture. So you're alluding to guys like Lockheed Groom and Josh Buckley, where they're managing very large pools of capital for institutional LPs. And it, you know, Lockheed's actually on our advisory board, and he's an amazing person, but I always wonder how he scales his time. And so I'd love to get your, all of your thoughts on this. Yeah, Lockheed and Josh are buddies, so um, I... They're, they're like very, they're very few Lockies and Joshes, right? Like um, a lot of people <clears throat> come into being a solo, solo GP and like that's a aspiration. And, um, you know, it's kind of like saying you want to be like an NBA all-star when um, not everyone could be on the all-star team. So um, I, I just think, I think we'll see a consolidation of solo GPs. Um, we'll see people joining funds, funds merging with solo GP, GP funds. Um, that's where I think it's going. I might add that venture management is almost like motherhood. You just have to outsource what you can, you know. And um, for fund one, I was a solo <laughs> GP too. And it's really, really hard. And for fund two, we have an outsourced CFO. And now I'm like, I can't imagine my life without her. We have a, an associate who's doing a lot of sourcing and our investment memo drafting. And it's like, I don't know how I could have left or lived without her too. So just outsourcing what you can. And really, it is a very difficult business to scale. So you have to be very um, rigorous about how you spend your time. Right, right. Peter, are you just listening? <laughs> yeah. or? I'm very much living this. Um, you know, I, so, so part of what I'm excited about is um, it's so structurally differentiated and complementary to all of the funds here, and so I'm going to maintain that as long as I can. Um, and part of that, that's part of what, you know, why I wanted to build Stellation in the first place. It's um, the founder-to-founder -founder kind of speed of interface and relationship is something that is, is quite special. So I've done a few things. Like I have a dedicated phone number that is just for my portfolio founders, so it's kind of like a bat phone. So it's like I can, you know, text my mom back tomorrow, you know what I mean? But I've got to text a portfolio no, founder back later today. No, I, 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 I talk to my mom all the time, but like, you know, like I've got a separate kind of bat phone for that. So that's when one. Two is I actually, I think... In, to, to kind of um, not have an ego, um, I think there's a, an important graduation dynamic that takes place with companies. So I think pre-seed and seed companies have more in common, you know, across that stage than when they start scaling and maturing. So that's where, you know, I think it's exciting to think about these founders then having an incredible stewards that are going to take board seats in the context of the Series A and the Series B that have specialization, that have kind of, you know, broader platform teams. And so, so I can kind of remain the the kind of like the one-to-one, -one, the founder-to-founder -founder kind of, you know, ad hoc text, you know, for anything that you need. And I can always be a resource and a, a sounding board. Um, but I think I, I, I also want to acknowledge the fact that, you know, in three years' time, you know, my portfolio um, could and should be working with, you know, incredible investors here and, and working with them as kind of the stewards for the, the scaling chapters that take place 
after the preceding seed. Right. You know, and also like thinking about the past 10 years, you know, it used to be founders just wanted to get the best named firm as their investor. And clearly that's changed. People want to work with specific partners. They want to work with specific seed funds and pre-seed funds. And, you know, touching on the solo capitalist, people want to work with Lockyer, want to work with Josh. And so, you know, what exactly from what you see do founders want? Do they want you to help organize their round? And how are they thinking about these rounds? Do they want multi-stage firms in it? Do they want more operators in it? it, it maybe give a sense to the, the LPs in the, in the crowd, um, in the audience here, what these rounds look like today. Yeah, I think speaking for crypto, um, the distinction between token rounds and equity rounds is, is important. But um, with token rounds, it's really like, Every fund wants to be a part of those. There aren't, there's probably two or three chances to invest in the company. So you see um, multi-stage funds, everybody's competing at that stage. With equity rounds, um, it looks more similar to what you'd see in Web2. And so you, have, um, you do have this concept of pre-seed and seed funds organizing syndicates, and you have more ball control in those situations to um, work with, with multi-stage funds. Or but but these, these token rounds, are this sort of just like social proof investing? Like if Andreessen comes in, everyone piles in? or It's, it's, a, it's a little... I mean, there's so many people who pile in, so it's... Um, I, I actually don't know how a lot of these funds underwrite the token rounds because your ownership... Um, like, by nature, the founders don't want anyone owning a large percentage exactly, of the company. Exactly, right. Um, and so for a $40 million fund, like, I can... Um, I can create assumptions that make that uh, math work, but I, I, I kind of don't know how that, uh, how that works for multi-stage other than relationship building. Right, right. We're obviously a biased crew, but I would say that most of the best founders that we work with want to work with us because we do have operating experience that can be helpful. So my partner Alex led all of engineering at Twitter, and he's gone from you know zero to 100 and knows how to really scale technical teams. And often you have technical founders who are looking for technical mentorship. They don't know who else to ask and going to a VC who may have worked you know in strategic consulting or you know something else that's important but different. So you know we try to bring to the table our set of experiences of growing these companies and making our own mistakes and learning from them. And, um, and also the horizontal challenge that we see across all of our companies, and you guys probably see this too, it's recruiting and closing top talent. And it's also thinking about, you know, marketing and product and go to market. And again, like we have a lot of these experiences, but also an extended network of people that we know can add value. Yeah. I think a lot about, um, to, to kind of like the frame of your question, Michael, um, if, if, you, if you take partners out of, out of venture firms and, and track their performance over time, the performance of the group and the brand changes. And so I, I look at that as like a little bit of an existence proof, that reputation um, and performance. And it is important to think about firms as, as collections of individual investing partners. So one of the exercises I like to do with portfolio founders after we close a seat round is to immediately make our wish list of the 15 individuals at firms that we want to start cultivating relationships with. Because... I do think at the end of the day, you're going to have an individual who's serving as your board director. You get the firepower and the reputation and the cumulative advantage of the, of the overall halo as well. But at the end of the day, you're interfacing with an individual. So that's where you know, I focus a lot on like empathy and relatability. And um, I, I feel like that has been so important for forming relationships because you know, if, if you can you know, interface with 25 different firms and, and, and there's more or less a, a, a similar kind of you know, availability of capital, 
you know, I think one of the most important things is to, is to choose a relationship that you feel really excited about, you feel like has alignment. Um, and oftentimes, the, the, the levels of hunger and alignment are very, very different across firms. So, um, and certain founders really prioritize that. Right. And so, Peter, you came from GC, right? And, you know, a relatively large firm. Um, over the past 10 years, I'd say that yeah. the multi-stage firms are becoming a lot more active and yeah. uh, have dedicated pools of capital to go after seed. So, you know, maybe, Katie, when you're looking at a, a, an investment that you want to lead, how do you, how do you keep ball control? And how do you avoid getting, um, you know, uh, let's say Sequoia and taking your coming in and taking your deal away? It's a great question. I will admit to this uh, group of friends, I made a rookie move in Fund One when I was looking at this deal, wanted to invest, and and I had a very good friend who was at a multi-stage company. I was doing a background check, and he was like, he's amazing. This founder's great. You should do it. Send a term sheet later that day. I was like, what the heck? And um, so I'm not going to do that again. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> so, like, it has gotten... Is that General Callis? <laughs> Just kidding. We'll talk Mike about Mike or <laughs> It wasn't That was not me. It wasn't me. Um, <laughs> I would never do that. But, um, but it is. It's very competitive out there. And, and, and actually, I was very happy with the outcome because I thought it was a perfect lead investor. And at the time, it wasn't the right one for us to lead. But it was a good signal to me to just be very careful. Like, who are we sharing these deals with? Um, you know, who is the right... Um, cast of characters, if you will, to bring to the cap table to really, you know, to ensure the future success of these companies. Because you're trying to bring together a diverse set of experiences and people that are really going to legitimately add value. And often founders, especially like not to, you know, diss on some of the accelerators, but it's like a shotgun wedding. They're like, you need to tell me by the end of this meeting, are you in or you're not? And you get like 0.00% allocation or ownership. And you're like, I, I don't know. And now you're realizing like, be patient. Like, we want to be in this for the long term. And we try to encourage our founders to think that way, too. Right. You know, one of the common knocks um, that seed fund managers make against the multi-stage funds is that, hey, if they come into your seed round and they don't lead their A, that's a negative signal. So, Peter, yeah, let me, coming out of GC, I have so many how do you think about this. that? Yeah, so, 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 you know, being up front, so I co-led the seed program at GC. Um, so, so I... I uh, really enjoyed thinking about these questions for a number of years with Nico and Haymont and the rest of the partnership. Um, and then the second piece is I wrote a paper my, my senior year on signaling um, because that was a conversation that had taken place back in 2012 when you had the first wave of firms like NEA and Andreessen and others doing kind of 500K uncapped notes and then having the conversation around, you know, our folks participating in the Series A. Um, at the end of the day, it, it is going to be driven by performance. Uh, of the portfolio companies. Um, and in today's environment, portfolio founders very much get to choose who they want as a, as, a, as a future partner. And so more often than not, you end up having high levels of competition even for those follow-on financing. So, um, you know, take it, you know, Roe is a seed investment that I led when I was at General Catalyst and another incredible firm came in and was the partner for the Series A. And then General Catalyst came in later on for the Series C. And so, um, I think that's a, an example of the fact that, you know, even though we didn't lead the Series A, we developed an incredible relation with the founder. Um, and again, I think the, the, the reasons for working with a multi-stage firm, um, number one is developing a relationship with someone that you do feel like can be a potential board director for your portfolio company. Uh, number two, leveraging the scale resources. So if you want functional support in the earlier stages, it's also, you know, why working with a firm like First Round gives so much kind of, you know, leverage and firepower for a, a portfolio company. Um, you can tap those resources as a seed stage firm and not wait for the Series A and Series B. Um, and then third is, 
again, it, there is this uh, kind of reputational cumulative advantage that you have as it pertains to recruiting and closing candidates and the conception of, you know, there being very natural future long-term capital um, that makes it easier for hiring a VP of engineering uh, if you need to do that. Um, and you can you leverage the, the, the reputation of the firm. And I also think it's really great to do these these investments with one multi-stage firm and then one dedicated, you know, purely aligned seed firm. And it, it's it's sometimes tough yeah, to make about, the math work. How about work. ownership required? Yeah, well, that's what I mean. I was going to say it, yeah. it's tough to make the math work. But when you do, the founders that are that are not near-term optimizing that take twenty-two and a half percent dilution of that financing end up owning companies that are worth fifteen billion dollars as opposed to two billion dollars because they had so much structural leverage, you know, 18 months ahead of time. Right, right. You know, um, all of you guys are very interesting personalities, very well-known in the venture world. Um, but I also think of you guys as very disciplined. And so kind of along the lines of where you're looking at a deal and then suddenly it gets away from you because Founder Fund comes in and says, hey, we'll give you five on 25 instead of the, the three on 12. So how do you guys maintain this discipline? And you know, ultimately, how wedded do you have to be to your ownership targets? Um, is it not better to perhaps just be working with the best founders out there? Yeah, this is happening in real time for us, where our average valuation now is 22, which is on the lower end for the seed market right now for the deals we do. Um, and we're asking ourselves, like, do we want to compete and stretch um, and do two to three million dollar checks and have a more concentrated portfolio. And um, candidly, like if you like to compete and win deals, then um, sometimes you do that. And so right now, um, like we have a term sheet out, uh, where we're doing a three million dollar check out of a forty million dollar fund. So um, and then you you probably just take take your first checks and do less less reserves, um, which I think sets you up nicely if you want to raise a, a larger third fund. But um, yeah, right now I, I mentioned we're we're behind pace on deployment. We're 12% deployed, um, and but you know you get you can get anxious, and you um, when you when you want to win deals, you 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 can I mean, make it. Seems like the velocity of, of investments has slowed down a little bit, just given the tur the turbulence in the markets. Do you see that, or is it still sort of out of control? Uh, it's still pretty damn fast in, in crypto, um, and so I would say there's less Series A plus action, like preempted after. You know, a couple weeks after the seed round, which I saw a lot in in Fund One, um, but it feels like we're going to to battle every day um, when we wake up. Right. And Katie, how about you? You know, when you're looking at a deal that you love, the founder, you did all the work, you have the syndicate lined up, and then someone comes in and tries to take you know take it away from you. Do you pay up? Do you participate? If even if you can't get your check size that you want. It's hard. I mean, often I will legitimately think in my head, like, what would Michael Kim say? Like, I mean, I am very lucky that I have, you know, a very disciplined LPAC. I have Michael, I have, I have Jacqueline and Moody at Foundry and Beezer and all these really smart people who have seen everything over and over and over again. And, and it's one of the important things I think we can all do as fund managers is to really make sure that we're disciplined. We have, you know, we have a uniqueness to our approach to venture that we're learning from, you know, from others. And, you know, like, like I see Hunter and Satya here and they've just done such an amazing job building homebrew and really at the forefront of seed and we learn from one one another and so we can't get too lost in you know the one that got away like we just really need to um you know be as disciplined as principled and as ambitious as we can right okay 
Um, I was going to say, I, I, just, I, just, I just let it go. I think optimizing for price, you know what I mean, tells me a lot about decisioning and a lot about relationship building. Um, and if it's not just about price, if it's about, oh my gosh, we really love this partner, then I try to basically kind of finagle it into kind of like a heads up deal. And that's where you make the exception. You say, okay, you really want to work with this firm. We'll do a smaller check. It'll be at a higher price. But the overall company is set up for greater long-term success. And so our smaller percentage ownership today is ultimately going to be in a larger company. And we have to believe that right. uh, in order to work together. I mean, a lot of this is, is by dint of very large pools of capital at the later stage coming in earlier, right? And if you can't compete with Sequoia and you're um, sort of a mid-tier Sandhill Road firm, you're going to try to go earlier, right? And so, you know, I guess um, I, I mentioned that this is our 10th anniversary and we're actually having an event next, uh, this, over the next few days and we're going to have a panel about, like, what does venture look like in the next 10 years so I kind of need some answers, and so I'd love to hear <laughs> what you guys think. I mean, I'll, I'll tell you my theory, which is, you know, I think firms like Sequoia, Andreessen, Tiger are going to dominate. And they just, aside from having the, the track record um, and the resources, I think they're building out serious scaled firms, right? I think Andreessen has like 400 people there. And, you, you know, you may think of them as like the next Carlisle or Blackstone where they're really building out different lines of businesses. And then you think about the specialized firms like, say, Ribbit or Emergence and focus on specific verticals. And then I think of you guys, you know, you're, you're um, you know, excellent at what you do. You work very early with the founders and help build those companies. But what, it, what about the sort of the middle of the pack? You know, the other thing yeah. is that this world is so much more de decentralized that if you're a, a principal or a junior partner at a second or third tier Stanhill Road firm, you could just leave and start your own firm, right? Yeah. And it, that is one of the fundamental changes, I think, in the last 10 years. People don't feel like they have to stay at a venture firm and, yeah. and try to claw their way up while the old guys, because they're usually guys, are clawing onto all the economics, right? So yeah. With that, what do you guys think? I mean, what, what, in 10 years from now, who's going to be dominating? I'll, I'll, give, I'll give you my initial thoughts, which is uh, I'm so excited for more two- and three-person equal partnerships to be truly dedicated, specialized, kind of aligned and hungry partners at the Series A. So when I think about Mike and Nikhil you know, from Footwork, when I think about Chris and Jordan from Pace, um, you know, my anticipation is that from a performance perspective over the next 10 to 15 years, it's not unreasonable for me to believe that those, those entities and those partners can, th those partnerships can look like benchmark um, and they can give founders an incredible experience. So, so that would be number one. So I don't, I don't think there's reason to believe that, you know, from a performance perspective, that the existing kind of skilled multi-stage players um, necessarily retain that piece of the business because the physics of AUM. Is, 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 is structurally moving in a different way. Uh, and those firms will be incredible Series B partners. They will be incredible force multipliers for, for helping companies continue to scale um, should they not want to choose to go public sooner. So I think that's number one. Uh, and then number two is I do think you're going to have increasing returns to brands and individuals. So I would actually say I think we are going to have more individuals that choose to specialize in certain areas and serve founders in an, in an aligned way. Um, so I think those two things are going to take place. I would agree. With founders, they have so many choices of where to get capital. Are they going to get capital from Freestyle? Are they going to get it from Homebrew? Are they going to get it from Footwork? 
yes, like those people are awesome. And they're in that, in this business for the long term. And I do, um, I do think it's going to be really interesting to see where the next wave of, um, of, of VC talent, are they going to choose to go to the bigger multi-stage firms? Are they going to start their own? Are they going to join some of these smaller, nimbler, awesome teams? Um, so I think there is going to be a shift and I don't necessarily think the multi-stage firms will dominate, but I'm biased. <laughs> yeah, similar. I, Love like thinking about the barbell venture, and I think you have to specialize if you're doing um, anything seed based, and that's what we've done. But um, there's that great. I think Everett Randall wrote that great article from Founders Fund, um, showing kind of that middle tier of funds who um, probably won't be around around in ten years, but um, we'll see. Right. Okay. Well, we're really out of time. Uh, this was a great conversation, so thank you, Thanks and for hopefully you. everyone in the audience enjoyed it. <laughs> <laughs>